Hello. Thank you for joining us for Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome again to the program. So just because someone says they're an apostle because they want to teach someone doesn't mean they actually care for that person in a fatherly way. Paul does. Discipline is one of those things we'd all rather avoid. We'd much rather do life our own way, make our own decisions, not subject to the rules of others. And the idea of discipline is at least uncomfortable, if not detestable. But as we mature, we recognise that to live in harmony in a constructive and fulfilling way, we need standards, rules, governing principles that influence and structure our behaviour in the world. When we disregard said standards, there are, of course, consequences. Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, as recorded in the New Testament of the Bible, have some insights on the importance of discipline. So let's join Dr. Corbett now for more in the Corinthian series tonight, Discipline and Restoration. We are continuing through Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. We are in 2 Corinthians today, and I'd like you to go to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. And I want to introduce this by saying 2 Corinthians is considered to be the most difficult of all Paul's epistles to interpret. And you'll see why if you've ever read it, you'll realise that it is really, really tricky. And there's a number of reasons why, and one of them will come out this morning. We've seen that the Corinthian church had a number of really big issues like really big one of the 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 reasons that we're going to be looking at this this morning out of second corinthians chapter one and a little bit into chapter two is that it's it's my hope that long after i've gone that this church knows how to handle difficult situations particularly when those situations involve people and more often than not churches and problems have a common denominator and that's people and the tendency can be that as we look at this issue we've already seen in first corinthians that there was a number of people that were causing grief there was two groups really one was a man who was living in really a, uh, almost an incestu- incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And I say incestuous because in the Greco-Roman world, to be adopted was to be the equivalent to being of blood relation. And he was sleeping sexually with his stepmother. Presumably his father had died. In other words, her husband had died. But that didn't make it right at all. And Paul actually tells the church leaders that they needed to deal with this. And, they're, they're, and he was very, very clear about this. So that's the first situation. But because Paul told them what to do, and he also was dealing with other situations that were reported to him, he's dealing with tricky situations, again, because people have all these different ideas about what God will accept and what God won't accept. So this involved things like whether it was right to eat meat, especially since all the meat that you could buy at that time was butchered by a pagan priest up the hill at Mount Corinth, which is, that's a, that's a picture of it today, sort of blurred out in the background there. Where if you went to Corinth, that's what you would see. The ruins of, of, a, of a temple and then up 
on Mount Corinth, there would, there would have been another temple to Aphrodite. And so this situation had to be dealt with by Paul. And by the time Paul's also dealt with spiritual gifts, and by the time he's explained what love really is, and then he's again come back into spiritual gifts, and then we saw in our last instalment that he's reminded them that they agreed to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were going through famine, and that they agreed that they would take up an offering so that their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem could get through that situation. Well, there are some people that actually objected to Paul even telling them what they should do. And so now we have 2 Corinthians. And I'm going to point out in a moment that it's not the second epistle that Paul wrote. In fact, this is because in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, in my previous epistle, so we know, if you can get your head around this, 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter that Paul wrote. And it'd be easy to think, oh, okay, got it. So 2 Corinthians would be the third. Well, no, not so fast. Because in between writing what we call 1 Corinthians and in between writing what we call 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote another letter. And scholars refer to this as the severe letter. And Paul uses the word severe through 2 Corinthians more often than any other epistle that he's, that he's written. Now here's something as just a thought. Some people think the reason these things that we have in our Bible are in the Bible is because an apostle wrote it. But I've just told you Paul wrote two other epistles, the one before 1 Corinthians and the one in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and they're not in the Bible. So that should tell us at least this, that just because an apostle wrote something, it didn't make it scripture. Men did not make scripture scripture it's whether it was divinely inspired by the holy spirit that's what constituted scripture that's the first thing to note so paul now is pretty angry he's pretty angry that even writing first corinthians there was this pushback against him and so he wrote this other letter which we don't have called the severe letter, where he says, okay, if I can summarise, enough's enough. Enough with me being Mr. Nice Guy. This is how it has to happen. You cannot be sleeping around with someone you're not married to, especially if it's your mother or stepmother. That's just not on. And for all those people who reckon I'm not an apostle, well, you can go and get lost in Jesus' name. That's, I think, the, the substance of his epistle. Well, do you think that didn't push buttons? Absolutely it pushed buttons. And so now his opponents went to town. And so he's now writing 2 Corinthians, which is almost certainly his fourth epistle to them. And he wants to, he wants to lay hands on some people. So I want you to understand that, especially as we discussed men. I want you to understand that. He wants to talk. And fathers, you know what I'm talking about, because many of us fathers, when we want to solve a problem with our kids, we just go straight to the jugular. Some of you. And you know who I'm talking about. There are some men going, he's not talking about me, he's talking about you. No, you know who I'm... Anyway, 
So Paul really wants to deal with something. This is, this is really important as we introduce 2 Corinthians now. So this is Paul's exposition. An exp- we are doing an exposition through Paul's epistle to epistles to the Corinthians. And this today is looking at discipline and restoration. So 1 Corinthians was about the need to discipline some of these issues. 2 Corinthians is going to be about how do we restore. So let's have a look at this. I want to pray. I want to set the stage a little bit clearer and more defined why we're going to be looking at this. So join with me. Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, a head that can process what your word says so that, Lord, we leave this place now in this gathering moment better equipped to understand how we as the church are to function. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're about to read in chapter 1 is an expression of Paul's fatherly heart. Paul will say to the Corinthians, you have many teachers, but you do not have many fathers. So just because someone says they're an apostle because they want to teach someone doesn't mean they actually care for that person in a fatherly way. Paul does. I want to explain this to you. I want to show you that this is exactly what's happening here. Paul's fatherly or pastoral heart for the Corinthians. In a moment, I'm going to jump into verse 13. But would you, if you've got your Bible open, can you just have a look at first, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3? I want you to see what Paul says here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort verse 4 who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God that's why Stuart and Sonia are so equipped to enter into turmoil and crisis and maybe even create a few uh, no, no, I'm kidding. It's when we are comforted in the midst of our trauma, our grief, our trials, that that comfort that we've received from God enables us to comfort others who are going through not the same, but similar circumstances. And that's what Paul says. Now, remember, Paul's got something to say. He really wants to say something. But before he wants to say something, he wants the Corinthians to know something. And that is that he cares. He really cares. He really loves them. Not with a love like Hollywood, I love you all. Not like that at the Academy Awards or wherever. Not by putting your hands together and going, ah. But really genuinely love someone as a father does. Because when you love someone, Genuinely, as a father, you love them enough to help them avoid unnecessary trouble. That's why fathers tell their daughters, that dress is too short. That's why fathers tell their children, I want you home by nine or whatever it is, depending on their age. Because we care. We 
care. This is what fathers do. Mothers will hug. Fathers will say, we need to talk about this. And that's okay because, as Stuart said, guys tend to be the fix-it guys. We tend to whatever. And I want you to hear that there's a different approach to the default that guys have because Paul really wants to bang heads. But listen to how he introduces his epistle. We've gone through stuff and the way God has comforted us enables us to comfort you because you're going through stuff. Do you hear the softness in his tone? Do you hear what he's doing here? Now we could read on and we could, we could see he talks about this. We've been through stuff and that's how we know to be careful and gentle with you. So now we come to verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand and i hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our lord jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you hear his heart again the day of the lord jesus is an expression in the new testament that means the last day it occurs in that john 11 passage where Jesus has that conversation with Martha and she says, yes, I know on the last day. What is the last day? The day when God says, that's it. No more days after this. This is the last day. Everyone will be judged for what they've done. Everyone. This is the day of judgment. So Paul says, on the day of Jesus Christ, the last day, we will boast about you. We will brag about you. This is, this is a father's pride. There's some pride that's not good, but a father to be proud of his children is a good, healthy pride. But I want you to understand that a father is probably the one more inclined to discipline his children than a mother. More inclined. Which is why parenting is a team effort. Which is why when we see a single mother... We see someone who now has twice the job with half the resources to do the job. Which is why we men in the church should help any single mother who's a part of our church. Do you hear me, men? Please do. But I want you to hear this loud and clear. We now live in a fatherless culture where the idea of correction and discipline is seen as hate, not love. This is the cultural temperature in which we are now living. Fatherless. I've just finished a, a maths course because I needed help with my maths. And part of my maths course, I had to research a great mathematician. So I chose Sir Isaac Newton. Three months before Isaac was born in Lincolnshire, uh, sort of central uh, England, his father died. He was born to his mother, firstborn child, and he was born fatherless. His mother did not want to raise him. So she gave him 
to her mother and said, you look after him. She married a man 33 years older than her and left her son with her mother and never spoke to him for nine years. Her husband, Isaac's stepfather, did not want anything to do with Isaac. Isaac was being schooled and part of the lesson for that day was it's good to write your prayers out and confess your sins. And so in his journal he wrote, God, please forgive me. I want to burn my house down with my mother and stepfather in it. A young kid. He was living with his grandmother and his grandfather and his grandfather wanted nothing to do with him. At the age of 10, when his grandfather died, he left nothing for Isaac in his will at all. Do you think this kid is going to have a complex? In fact, we look back on that now, and this is in the 1600s. He was born in uh, 1646. We look back on this now and we go, this young man had a rejection complex, but for good reason. And so he never had a father in his life, never. He never had a father say, no son, this is not how you do it. He never had a father say, no son, pull your head in, don't talk to people like that. No son, that's not right. You do not treat a woman like that. He never had that. If you know the story, he was... He received a scholarship into Cambridge University and, and while he was uh, two-thirds of the way through his bachelor's degree in, in philosophy and maths was a part of philosophy, he invented calculus. And everyone who's ever done high school maths goes, why did he do that? <laughs> except James and except uh, Ben. Where are you, Ben? He's somewhere back there, except you, you blighter. Um, and Adam on the camera, calculus. He eats it for breakfast. Anyway, and then he discovered that white light was actually multiple colours put together. He demonstrated this. He wrote it in a paper called Optics. He was criticised by Dr Robert another mathematician he hurt when he received that criticism he hurt so bad he went into a depressive state for about two years and never published the full paper of optics until that man died Robert Hooke because he couldn't handle discipline and correction and someone speaking into his life because he'd grown up without a father here Paul is wanting to speak to people the way a father speaks to a child that he loves. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Remember we saw he was going to come to them, collect the collection, go with some of their representatives and go back to Jerusalem to take this offering. This is what he's talking about. 
But he didn't turn up when he said he was going to turn up. Was I vacillating, he says, when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say, yes, yes, I'm coming to you, when in fact I mean, no, no, I'm not. No, at the same time, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And we've already seen Paul in, in our last installment, we saw, he said, I'm going to come to you if the Lord wills. So he has this incredibly flexible approach to life. And he wants, he wants these people whom he has a father's heart for to understand, when I said I was coming, it really was my intention to come. But this is what's happened. I'm coming. It's not like I say it and never meant it. I did mean it. And I'm coming to you. But this is some of the criticism that he's got from those people that he really wants to knock their heads together. But he's talking to them with gentleness. He's talking to them as a father. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, not yes it isn't, but no it really isn't. But in him it is always yes. Whatever Jesus says he will do, he will do. Because he's not subject to the same winds of change that we are all subject to. But Dad, you said we were going. Yes, son, we were going, but this has happened. This is kind of how the tone of the conversation is with Paul right now, talking to the Corinthians. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Why? Because God never has to pray, may the will of God be done. He's God. <laughs> That's why. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In other words, God will fulfill what he said he's going to do. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you again in Corinth. Why? Because quite probably Paul was so angry with those people that were calling him names, calling him a liar, calling him false. He said, I am so angry, it is better that I don't go into that room. And this room just happened to be across the Aegean Sea. It is better that I don't go to them right now. He had to calm down. There are some dads here who need to calm down. And if I point a finger at you, remember there's three pointing back at me. Not that we lord it over your faith, Paul says, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So Paul's previous letter just to this one, it caused much sorrow among the Corinthians. When he's written and said, okay, look, that enough's enough. I told you this is the will of God. I did not invent it. This is clearly the will of God. You should not be having sex with someone you're not married to, especially if it's your mother. You should not allow this man to be in your church while he professes to be a Christian, all the while living like someone who doesn't know Christ. That's not right. So there was great sorrow caused over this. And then when Paul dealt with these people in his severe letter, 
the sorrow increased. In 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul had instructed the church to discipline the wayward member for sexual sin. And we read further into this epistle where Paul talks about this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, this is the letter we don't have, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Every dad knows this. There are times when you just have to stand your ground because you love your child, your children. And your children can say things to you that hurt you deeply. I know. I'm the father of four kids, three of whom are daughters. To be accused by your child. You just don't love me. If you loved me, you'd let me go and destroy my life. I love you. That's why I don't want you to destroy your life. And this is the conversation that Paul's having now. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his critics, these people, his letters are weighty and strong. But his bodily appearance, his presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. We are not this when we write and something completely different when we are not. This epistle had met with some heated opposition toward Paul, which led him to write again. And that's what we're reading now. But I want you to note how he opened this epistle. We love you. We care for you. We know you're going through stuff. We understand. We want to comfort you in the midst of that. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, Paul says, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death, Paul says. Well, in the midst of all this, in a remarkable turn of events, the man at the center of the first epistle, the man who was sleeping with his stepmother, in the midst of all this, he repents. He acknowledges that what Paul is saying is true. He hears what the leaders of the church come to him with, reading what Paul wrote. And he says, please forgive me. He confesses his sin and he seeks forgiveness, not just from God, but from his church family. It's an amazing thing that while all this is going on, this happens. It is absolutely amazing. So now Paul, in this epistle says, now that he's repented, now that he's repented, you should restore him into fellowship. Welcome him back as a brother. For such a one, reading in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, this punishment by the majority is enough. What was the punishment? You can't join with us. You can't come into the fellowship, the congregation, the assembly, when we gather each Sunday. You cannot until you repent. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or if you don't, he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This is how discipline is dealt with 
It leads to restoration after repentance and seeking forgiveness. And then Paul says this, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I want our church to be the kind of church where people can come in, wonder, does God love me? And they experience it from you. And they go, he loves me. I found love. These people love me because God loves me. And we do. We do. Anyone whom you forgive, Paul says, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven. If I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake. In the presence of Christ. Notice this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs, his schemes, his plans against the church. Because what does Satan want to do in every local church? He wants to divide it so that he can destroy it. And we want to be the kind of church that builds, not destroys. To see people restored, to see people healed and forgiven. Exercising church discipline and restoration is actually a part of spiritual warfare. If we do not discipline the willfully wayward, the persistently wayward, the one who is saying, I am a Christian, but living like they do not know Christ and bringing disrepute to the church and to Christ, if we don't deal with that gently, at first, firmly, as the case may be, we are not being godly and we are entering into dangerous spiritual warfare territory here's the point of discipline the greater the responsibility someone has within a church the greater the accountability they need to be subject to would you please stand i want you to know that no matter what you've done no matter who knows what you've done no matter how many times you've done it, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and gave his life, as we heard Tom share over communion this morning, he did that to forgive you, to cleanse you, to wash you, to make you new. And that is something we have all experienced. His unmerited favour of forgiveness because of what Christ has done. And it happened at the cross. I'm going to come back and I'm going to give an invitation and a benediction and I hope that God does something in us as a church. Father, I pray that we might come to know you as our Saviour, the one who forgives, the one who's offered forgiveness to us. Father, I pray for those who are joining with us now, no matter where they are, no matter where they're watching from, that Lord, right now in this space, you would speak to them. May they hear your voice saying sweetly and gently, Come home, my child. Come home into the everlasting arms of your heavenly Father, the one who loves you and cares for you, the one who sent his Son and gave his life for you in your place. That Father, all those who are joining with us now might cry out from their heart, God, I want to come to you. Please forgive me.
help me to live the way I should live. I'm so sorry for what I've done, what I've said and how I've treated you. But now, God, I come to you and I want to receive the forgiveness that you're offering. And I pray, Lord, that we as your church would be agents of that healing, agents of that forgiveness, agent of that, agents of that salvation that you offer to all people. And so now, Lord, I pray that we might know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. And if you want to see Stuart form an orderly line after the service, God bless you. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Discipline and Restoration from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, discipline is not only a necessary part of maintaining standards of behaviour, but should be delivered with care as a loving father would following Christ's example. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.